You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 116. Hey there, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of my story, The Muse. This is a novelette that I wrote for Metamorph City back in 2003, when I was in grad school at UC Santa Cruz. It was the fourth story that I wrote for the setting, after Welcome to the City, House Call, and Huntress. It was also my first attempt at writing a funny story, or at least the first I had attempted since reaching adulthood. I hope you enjoy it. The Muse A Tale of Metamorph City Written and read by Chris Lester Part 1 October 29th, 1999, Christos Reckoning. James William Karenson walked down the busy streets of downtown Metamore with his jacket hood up, his hands in his pockets, and entirely too much on his mind. While those around him moved in twos, threes, and roving packs from one night spot to another, or stood chatting outside the bars, nightclubs, and coffee shops, he walked alone his eyes darting this way and that to take in his surroundings. He studied each person who passed him with careful scrutiny, quickly taking in height, build, color, dress, and attitude, before moving on to his next subject. All the while, the wheels in his head spun like high-speed propellers, far faster than anyone would have expected of a young college student out walking on a Friday night. He wasn't looking for anyone in particular, nor was he paranoid. He was just thinking about how he would describe the scene in his great Metamorian novel. The chill October wind blew around and through me as I walked the streets of the city, he thought. It was eleven, or a little past that, and while in most places it would be a time for closing up shop, here the nightlife was just beginning to heat up. They say that Metamor is the city that never sleeps, but she does seem to catch the odd catnap from time to time. Tonight it felt like she'd nodded off in a corner for a few hours, and awakened refreshed and ready to party. In truth, James William Carenson didn't have a great Metamorian novel. He didn't really even have a great Metamorian short story, but he was working on that. It was just a matter of time. Well, time, effort, and a lot of cups of coffee at late hours of the evening after his homework was done. His family called him Jamie, to distinguish him from his father, who was also named James, when he came to Metamore City and started college, he had begun introducing himself to people as Will, a name that he thought more appropriate for a famous novelist. J. William Karenson was a name that could sell books, or at least he hoped so. In any event, it was a relief just to get rid of Jamie, whatever the excuse. Will was really a pretty normal kid in most ways. Medium height, blue-gray eyes sandy brown hair that had finally given up on being blonde about five years back, 
He was slim, with a genetic predisposition towards scrawny, and had facial features that were slowly maturing from cute to fairly handsome. He wore jeans and skyball shoes, though he rarely played, sweaters in winter and short-sleeve plaid button-downs in the summer, and a short, even, and slightly spiky haircut that had been in style about two years ago. He was the sort of fellow you could sit two chairs away from in class for an entire semester and never remember seeing him before in your life. Will had learned this in his attempts to pick up girls on campus. He had come to the city two years ago from his hometown of Haverfield in order to become a great writer. Officially, of course, he had come here to attend college at Empire University's School of Communications, but that was just a cover story to keep the checks coming from mom and dad. It was a legitimate career path in their eyes, but being a journalist was about as close to being a writer as being a commercial skyship captain was to being a fighter pilot. It wasn't what Will wanted. Journalists sat in crowded bullpens day after day, churning out dreary, lifeless prose that would be read by the locals and then recycled the next morning. Writers had the potential to see their work read by millions and remembered for years, decades, even centuries. They could look back at the end of their careers and know that they had contributed something special, something meaningful to the history of the world. A writer's job was to put his fingers to the wrist of his culture and record that pulse for posterity. That was Will's dream, his vision, and, if he could be forgiven a little irrational enthusiasm, his destiny. Unfortunately, one's destiny can often seem rather elusive. Will had discovered, even before coming to the city, that his muse was, like all muses, an incredibly finicky and temperamental mistress. He'd had several good short stories over the years, a few of them bordering on brilliant, and some of them had even been published. But these gifts from his imaginary goddess of inspiration were, in truth, frustratingly infrequent. She would hang around and whisper in his ears for hours, or days, or weeks, and then suddenly go off on an extended vacation without informing Will of her whereabouts, or when she planned to return. It was very much a love-hate relationship from Will's point of view not to mention on-again, off-again. Right now it was off-again, so Will was walking the streets alone at night, composing scenes in his head in hopes of enticing her back to him. Failing that, maybe he could convince one of the real muses to take him on as a pupil, out of pity if nothing else. It was hard to believe that the actual spirits of inspiration could be any crueler to him than the metaphorical one inside his head. Will grinned at that thought, remembering a lesson from one of the many books he'd studied on how to be an author. When writing fiction that incorporates the magical or the supernatural, never use metaphor. Your readers will either take your metaphors literally, or take your spells and spirits as metaphorical. Either way, you're in trouble. It was a good lesson, but mostly aimed at writers in more mundane communities than Metamore City. Magic was as real and alive in the world now as it had ever been if not more so, but it wasn't distributed evenly. Growing up in Haverfield, in the remotest suburbs of Elkarin, Will had never seen a wizard, a deva, a vampire, or anything of that sort. Here in Metamore, they were in every club and alley. Will was in the process of debating whether he would classify that last thought as literal or hyperbole when he felt a hand on his shoulder. He stopped, turned, and abruptly found himself face to face with a woman. 
She was young, maybe a little older than him, and about his height. Her hair was a wild, matted poof of mousy brown, with shocks of gold running through it. It fell to just above her shoulders, and flew outward at about the same distance in every direction except straight up, giving it the look of a lion's mane. Her tight black leather pants contrasted with her rather mundane walking shoes, and the forest green turtleneck she wore didn't really seem to go with either of them. He couldn't see her face very well in the dim light of the street lamps, but from what he saw she looked quite pretty. She was wearing a big, bright smile that was cheerful, inviting, and carried a few undertones that Will had seen in movies but had no personal experience with. "'Hey, Tiger,' she said, her voice a purr that nicely matched her expression. "'You busy tonight?' For a young man who had spent the entire evening thinking about writing, Will was surprisingly at a loss for words. "'Uh, um, no, not really,' he stammered, still trying to figure out if that expression was really what he thought it was. He was a writer, so naturally he was quite familiar with terms like enticing, sensual, and seductive. He just wasn't used to seeing them up close. The woman wrapped her arms around his neck and leaned forward a little. Wannabe? she asked. Behind her, a passerby tripped over his own feet and went sprawling to the pavement, much to the amusement of his companions. Will barely noticed, certain other things looming a bit larger in his field of vision. Um, uh, he said. Great, come on then. Taking him by the arm, she turned and began walking in the same direction he'd been going. Will followed without really thinking about it. His mind was in the middle of a rather sudden reboot, and hadn't gotten around to re-establishing much more than the basic motor functions yet. Thanks a bunch for doing this, the girl said, sounding genuinely grateful. Just keep walking and don't look back. Do you mind if I borrow your jacket, too? It'll help keep them from spotting us. Something about that last bit set off alarm bells in Will's head. As verbal skills finally came back online, he managed... Spotting us? Who? Long story. Jacket, please. She stretched out a hand. Obediently and somewhat numbly, Will took it off and handed it over. She quickly put it on, raised the hood, and zipped it up as far as it would go. Perfect, she said. Warm, too. I like that. Now, put your arm around me and try to look snugly. She demonstrated, sliding a hand around to his opposite side and pulling him toward her in a kind of sideways hug. Will responded to the sudden squeeze by nearly jumping out of his skin. Take it easy, she hissed. Then, more gently, Jumpy, aren't you? Sorry, Will said, ducking his head. It tickled. Aww. The woman cooed, as if she found the fact that he was ticklish to be completely adorable. Sorry about that, tiger. Here, I'll put my hand a little lower this time. She repeated the motion, this time letting her hand settle over his belt. Sheepishly, he did likewise. And after a few awkward seconds, they were walking down the street in a fairly comfortable embrace. See, isn't this nice? She said, resting her head against his shoulder. No tickling involved. I... Can't really complain, Will said, reaching for and nearly recovering the wry sense of humor that he liked to consider his trademark. So, um, I'm sorry, what did you say your name was? I didn't. In spite of himself, Will chuckled once at that. Well, no, I realize that, but I was trying to be polite. It's Callie, what's yours? 
Will. There's a difference between polite and pompous, Will. I think you are starting to drift from one to the other. Thanks for the tip. Will swallowed once and tried to will away the sudden burning in his cheeks, taking note of the pun in passing and filing it away for future use. So, Kelly, why are we doing this? There are some guys out here looking for me that I'd like to avoid, she said, turning her head a little in either direction to get a better look at their surroundings. They're looking for a woman by yourself, so they're less likely to notice me this way. I hope you don't mind. Well, it wasn't like I was doing much of anything else, Will admitted. You're not in trouble with the cops, are you? Callie chuckled. No, not with the cops. These guys are from Streetside. Will swallowed again, this time trying to get rid of the lump that had suddenly begun to rise in his throat. He'd never been down to the street, the district of factories, warehouses, and slums that made up the ground level of the city, but he'd heard plenty of stories. You had to be resilient, stubborn, or just plain mean to survive on the street. Lots of its residents were all three. And they were only one level above the street right now, on one of the wide, elevated walkways that wrapped around Metamore's enormous skyscrapers and flowed together to form a network of city blocks and open plazas, suspended in midair by a combination of clever engineering and careful enchantments. A thirty-second ride in a lift could put them in contact with all sorts of colorful people, the kind that made great literary characters but lousy acquaintances. Suddenly the downtown district didn't seem as safe as it had a few minutes ago. What should we do? Will asked. Should we try to find a cop? Normally not a bad idea, but we'd better give it a pass in this case, Callie said. I'll explain later, after we get out of this. For now, just keep walking. I'll steer us where we need to go. They walked two more blocks like that, just moving casually among the crowds of people. Will desperately wanted to look around for any sign of their pursuers, but Callie insisted that he keep his eyes straight ahead, or focused on her. Anything more would just draw attention to them. After the second block, they turned right, crossed two lanes of slow-moving skimmer traffic, and ducked inside a nightclub that didn't have a line waiting to get in. The bouncer, who had just spilled his drink as they approached, was a bit distracted and waved them inside without even bothering to check their ID. The place was plenty crowded inside, though, and they were swiftly greeted by both a wall of people and the heavy, thunderous beat of moderately fast, moderately hardcore music. They squeezed and shimmied their way through the traffic on the dance floor to settle into one of the booths in a dimly lit corner of the room. At Callie's instruction, they sat together on the same side of the booth, facing away from the door. She snuggled up close to him and rested her head on his chest. If there is somebody following you, how will you see them coming? Will asked, speaking directly into her ear in order to keep his voice down. Callie gestured at the bar off to their right. There was a mirrored wall behind it that gave a nice view of the front entrance. To the left of the bar was the exit to the building's interior, which on this floor was probably a shopping center. Good thinking, Will said. Experience, Callie replied. Will wasn't sure he liked the implications of that. After a few minutes, their mysterious pursuers turned up. There were only four of them, but Will was quite sure he wouldn't want to get mixed up with them. They were stocky and muscular, dressed in leather jackets, and adorned with far too much heavy gold jewelry to qualify as nice guys. Probably swoopies, based on what Will knew of such things. 
The fact that they were Lutons just helped to round out the image they were trying to convey. Not that Will had anything against Lutons in principle, but their species did seem rather appropriate in this case. Stereotypes didn't come into existence without at least some justification, after all. There's our guys, Callie murmured, so soft that Will almost didn't hear her over the pounding music. Now, don't look at them, look at me. Will did so, taking the opportunity to examine her face again. If anything, there was less light in here than there had been outside, but he also had more time to look. He could make out large, expressive eyes, unblemished skin, a pert nose, and a chin that was pointed without being jutting. Her cheekbones were high and moderately defined, her eyebrows were high and thin, and her mouth had a slight upturn at the left corner that gave it a cute, perpetually quirky look. Will mentally upgraded her from quite pretty to beautiful. While he was studying her, Callie was studying the newcomers, sneaking little glances at them over Will's shoulders while pretending to be focused on him. She leaned in close to him, running a hand over his cheek and down to the back of his neck, then leaned in as if to whisper seductively in his ear, in actuality to get a better look at her pursuers. Will was beginning to feel distinctly uncomfortable. This was the most attention he had ever received from a member of the opposite sex, at least since he'd gotten out of diapers, and neither his mind nor his body was quite sure how to handle it. The fact that he knew it was an act didn't help matters much. What are they doing? he whispered, trying to get his mind focused back on the imminent danger and off of the woman who was practically sitting in his lap. They're checking the dance floor, Callie said, her breath tickling his ear as she placed her mouth right in front of it. One of them's taken the high ground over by the entrance. Two are down on the floor now. Looks like they're checking on girls who are dancing alone. Fourth one? Uh-oh. What? He's checking the booths and tables. Would he recognize you? Don't know. He's seen me before, but it's not always easy to tell faces apart if they aren't your race or species. It really depends on how much contact he's had with humans, and that's something I couldn't tell you. That answer was less reassuring than Will really would have liked. So what do we do? Stick with the plan. They obviously aren't expecting me to be with anybody, or they would be taking a closer look at the couples on the dance floor. She drew back and looked him in the eyes. Whatever happens, don't panic. Think you can handle that, Will? Taking a deep breath, Will nodded. Yeah, I think so. Callie smiled. Good. Then she took his head in her hands and kissed him. To his credit, Will did not panic. He was, however, so thoroughly surprised that his jaw dropped open, to which Callie responded by thrusting her tongue into his mouth. Will had been kissed on only a few occasions before, despite his good looks, and no woman had ever kissed him like this. In spite of all that, however, Will adapted with remarkable speed and was soon returning the kiss with equal enthusiasm, albeit far less skill. He wrapped his arms around her and drew her closer to himself, and for several long and glorious minutes the world fell away, and there was nothing but her lips, her scent, her touch. At last they parted, slowly, Callie drawing out his bottom lip before finally releasing it from between her own. Will took another long, deep breath to restore oxygen to the higher portions of his brain. Wow, he breathed. That was... He shook his head slightly in wonder. Callie smiled. 
You catch on pretty quick for a beginner. Will grinned. Thanks. The grin abruptly slid off his face. You knew I was a beginner? Callie put a finger to his bottom lip and playfully stuck out her tongue between her teeth. You pay attention. I like that. She slid out of the booth and extended a hand to him. They're gone. I think I'm safe for the time being. Thanks. I owe you one. It was my pleasure, Will said. I mean, really my pleasure. Callie grinned. Two choices, Tiger. I give you back your coat and you keep on walking, or you show me where a girl can get a decent cup of coffee around here. Where's here? Will asked. Twelfth and Green. Ring any bells? He smiled, glad to be the one calling the shots for a change. I think I know a little place about a block from here. It was a pretty typical little independent coffee bar, the kind frequented mainly by writers, poets, art students, and other quietly anti-establishment types. Will sometimes came here to study or write in hopes of giving his mind a change of scenery. The walls were painted a warm, rich reddish-brown, with maple trim, and decorated with abstract art that Will suspected was meant to be profound. He and Callie nursed a couple of cups of coffee and gazed at each other across a small table. The lighting here was a warm, mellow golden hue, but it was bright enough for Will to once again reevaluate the girl sitting before him. His writer's brain ran over its earlier description of her to see if there was anything that needed revising. She was the strangest combination of beautiful and disheveled I had ever seen, he thought, his mind quickly and instinctively converting his observations to past tense narrative. On the one hand, her makeup was perfect. Well, I really didn't know much about makeup, but whatever she was doing was working great for her, and her clothes were clean and carried the scent of perfume. On the other hand, her hair was a tangled mess, and her outfit looked like it had been scavenged at random from the hampers of three different college girls. If she was trying to make a statement, I didn't have a clue what it was. What really caught his attention now, though, were her eyes. They were a deep green that roughly matched the color of her turtleneck, with little flecks of black and gold mixed in here and there. They sparkled with life and humor as she regarded him casually from across the table. So, well, she said, tell me about yourself. Well, um, all right. Will straightened a little bit in his chair and tried to turn his focus back toward the here and now. My name is J. William Karenson, and I'm a writer. Any further exposition was cut off by a sudden shriek of delight from the woman behind him, who'd found a twenty-mark bill tucked into the pot of artificial flowers at her table. What's the J stand for? Callie asked, ignoring the other woman's cries of her good fortune. James, my father. Gotcha. So what do you write, Mr. J. William Karenson? She put a little imitation of an upper-class accent into the last bit. For maybe the first time, Will realized how pretentious it sounded. He shrugged. Fiction? I'm still experimenting with different genres. I've had a few short stories published, but nothing bigger yet. Still waiting for my big breakout concept. And in the meantime, you're going to college to keep food on the table? Will grinned. Pretty much. What about you? You said you'd explain what this was all about when we were safe. Who were those guys? Why were they after you? Callie smirked. I have something they want back. Want back? Will frowned. You stole something from them? I stole back, really. 
it wasn't theirs to begin with. Will gave her a quizzical look. She rolled her eyes and let out a short little sigh. Do you know what a runner is, Will? You mean those pieces of carpeting you put down to keep people from tracking mud over the floors? She smirked again. Not even. A runner is a person who does freelance missions for the underworld bosses and other people who don't want to draw attention to themselves. Mages guilds, the Psy Collective, the Lothanasi. Big corporations who don't want their hands dirty. Even the government hires them from time to time. Huh. So what do these runners do for them? Callie shrugged. Lots of different things. Courier work, espionage, burglary, computer cracking. Different runners have different specialties. We don't kill or threaten people, but just about anything else is fair game. Wow. Sounds like a very... Will frowned as his brain caught up with her. Did you say we? Callie nodded. I'm a runner. Like I said, those greenies were looking for me because I stole something from their boss. Something he'd had stolen from my client. Will leaned back in his chair and thought about that for a moment. Who's their boss? he asked. Street-level wolf, Callie said. Will recognized the slang term for an unlicensed mage who'd had his magic-inhibiting restraining band illegally removed. A conjurer goes by the name of Trajan. Runs a gang down in Sola. Bad customer. You wouldn't want to meet him. Will didn't doubt that for a minute. So what did he steal? An icon from St. Marai's Cathedral. You do know what tomorrow is, right? Daedrachema, Will offered. Costumes, wild parties, kids begging for candy. And also a big night for the forces of darkness, Callie added. Trajan needs to deface the icon in a ritual tomorrow at midnight. He hopes to summon a Baylor to wipe out an enemy gang horning in on his turf. Will shivered at that. A Baylor? That's one of the really bad kinds of Daedra, isn't it? Callie smiled humorlessly. You got that right. Will he even be able to control something like that? Not for more than a few minutes, if my experience with Trajan is anything to go on, Callie said. It could tear its way through six city blocks before the Lothanasi find it and deal with it. And you can't call and give the Lothanasi the heads up because... I stole something from them a few weeks ago and they still aren't happy about it, Callie nodded. We have to make sure to keep the icon away from Trajan until after midnight tomorrow. Where is it now? I stashed it somewhere, but it won't be safe there for long. I'll have to go back for it. She smiled. What do you say, Tiger? Want to help me save the city from the bad guys? A smile slowly spread over Will's face. I paused to take in her offer, he thought. Like it or not, I'd stepped into something dangerous. The dark and veiled underbelly of the city that most people either didn't know about or tried to forget. Now this beautiful stranger had walked into my life and given me a free pass to walk on the wild side. I was scared, of course. If I took this step, I would enter a world that could swallow me whole, a world where the monsters walked in the open, and the skeletons in people's closets sometimes came out to play. Helping this woman would be the most dangerous thing I'd ever done in my life, but at the same time, it was a chance to do something that mattered. A chance to be a hero. A chance to step away from writing about adventures and start living one. A chance to... Um, well? Callie waved her hand in front of his face. You with me here or what? I smiled grimly. If there would be danger, let it come. If it meant a chance to be a hero, 
and another day or two in Callie's company, it would all be worth it. I had my casting call from Destiny, and it was time for my close-up. Sure, he said. It's not like I have anything better to do. And that's the end of part one. Come back next week for part two, when Will and Callie retrieve the icon and immediately find themselves in more trouble. Stephen King said, The most important things are the hardest to say. They are the things you get ashamed of because words diminish them. Words shrink things that seemed limitless when they were in your head to no more than living size when they're brought out. But it's more than that, isn't it? The most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried, like landmarks to a treasure your enemies would love to steal away. And you may make revelations that cost you dearly, only to have people look at you in a funny way, not understanding what you've said at all, or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried while you were saying it. That's the worst, I think, when the secret stays locked within, not for want of a teller, but for want of an understanding ear. I think Mr. King is absolutely right, and bringing those secret things into the light, no matter how hard it is, that's what makes this writing gig worth doing. So here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 12,353 words this week over the course of 14.75 hours for an average writing speed of 837 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 68 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of August, I wrote a total of 35,347 words. That's the highest word count I've ever reached in a single month, and more than two-thirds of it came in the second half of the month. That's not an accident, by the way. As many of you know, my partner Melanie is off at Burning Man right now, so I've basically been on a two-week writing retreat, at least when I get home from work. I've missed her terribly, but I can't deny that it's good for my career when she goes off on these trips. Or it can be, when I'm focused and disciplined about making use of the time. Anyway, I wrote on all 31 days of August, averaging 1,140 words per day. I spent a total of 44.25 hours writing. Compared to July, my word count increased by 60%, and my writing time increased by 61%. This week is special because not only did I hit my highest word count ever, but I also finished the first draft of The Lost and the Least. The final word count for the first draft was 215,749 words. That is by far the longest thing I've ever written. By comparison, making the cut was about 180,000 words, so this book is about 20% longer than my longest previous work. Looking at that, I was curious to find out how long it had taken me to write this beast. I don't know exactly how much time I spent on it, because I started it in 2013, and I didn't start keeping track of my hours until 2015. However, I had only written about 10,000 words on the book before I started tracking things, so given that my average writing speed tends to hover around 700 words per hour, that's probably around 14 hours worth of work. In 2015, when I started doing this again seriously, I logged 40.5 hours and added about 33,000 words to the novel. 
In 2016, I did another 149.75 hours, and over 95,000 words. And in 2017, I did 106.75 hours, and wrote another 76,500 words and finished the book. Add it all up, and that comes out to 311 hours to write a nearly 216,000-word book. Which is pretty amazing when you think about it. That's less than an hour a day for a year. If I can do just that much, I can complete a huge book in a year's time. Or two novels of 108,000 words each, which is a much saner length and potentially would be much more profitable. So even though I'm nowhere near the fastest writer I know, if I can just keep going at my current pace and be diligent, I can put a lot more books out there. That's really exciting. And now, the feedback. Andrew MacArthur wrote in with this question. For a city that includes theriomorphs, how does the population feel about the keeping of pets? I can't remember any specific pets in any of the Metamorph City stories off the top of my head. Would such a practice be looked down upon? How important is pet licensing in Metamorph City? Would theriomorphs be against the keeping of pets? Would they keep any themselves? Hi, Andrew. It's funny that you should mention pets, because the next Metamorph City book features the first appearance of a pet animal in the series. In The Lost and the Least, we'll get to meet Callie's cat, Slippers. Keeping pets isn't really frowned upon in Metamorph City, but it's not always convenient either. Dogs have to be taken out for walks, which can be a challenge when you live hundreds of feet in the air. Also, most people are renters, and landlords tend to look less kindly on tenants with animals, or charge them for the privilege of keeping them. Still, people keep pets just about everywhere there are people, so I'm sure there are plenty of them around in Metamorph. The truth is that pets are underrepresented in fiction because they introduce plot complications that are unrelated to the story. People with dogs, for instance, have to take their dogs into account in every aspect of their daily lives. Somebody has to be home at regular intervals to play with them, walk them, feed them, etc. It's hard to have an adventure when you have to be home every six or seven hours to let the dogs out. In Jim Butcher's The Dresden Files, he had to cheat and make Mouse a nearly invulnerable superdog so that Harry could take him along on his insanely dangerous adventures. If Mouse were a golden retriever, Harry would be staying home a lot more. As far as theriomorphs are concerned, people in Metamorph don't think of them as sharing a category with pet animals. Theriomorphs are people, regardless of what they look like, and pet animals are not. A cat theriomorph might own pet cats, for instance, and no one would really think that much of it. There might be some jokes about sharing food to cut down on the bills, but that would be the extent of it. Andrew goes on to say, This also made me think about vampires. I know they seem to think of their thralls as pets. Would they be okay with their thralls keeping animal pets? Would they encourage it as a way to enforce their worldview? That is an interesting question, Andrew. And the answer probably is, it depends on the vampire. Remember, all vamps have OCD, so having animals that leave extra fur and dander lying around could be stressful for them. Of course, vampires were ordinary people before they were vampires, and if a vamp was a dog person or a cat person before being turned, they probably will still be a dog or cat person after they've turned, and they might be totally fine with letting their thralls keep pets of their own. They would probably make the thralls do a lot more vacuuming to keep the hair under control, though. 
Lastly, Andrew says, thinking of other unsavory practices that might happen in the city, is there any danger of theriomorphs being abducted and prevented from changing out of animal form, and so forced to be someone's pet? What kind of rights do pets have in Metamore City? Well, it's certainly possible that a theriomorph could get trapped in animal form and then disguised as a pet animal. They would show up as a magical creature under enchantment scanners, but unless a wizard was studying them closely, people might not realize they were a theriomorph. It's possible that someone could get stuck that way for a long time, especially down at street level. I wouldn't be surprised if the theriomorph community has urban legends about this sort of thing. As for animal rights, they're pretty similar to what they would be in Europe or North America in the modern day. Pet animals are considered something halfway between children and property, and it's illegal to abuse them. Thanks for the great questions! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641 715 3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2003 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, no derivatives license, so don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.